So Christmas is a season about music. It's a season filled with songs. And while the kids make their way back, a couple of things you'll need. We're going to be in Luke chapter 1, so you'll need to turn to Luke in your Bibles. And uh, it'll be really helpful to follow along on the back of the bulletin. We've got kind of a full outline. And so last Wednesday at our uh, youth group, there was uh, uh, some of the kids were debating when is it appropriate to begin singing Christmas songs. So uh, a couple of the girls were very passionate that it is morally wrong to begin singing Christmas songs before December 1st. So there's, it's just morally wrong. Now, my, my stance is that there's so much good Christmas music, why, why only wait for one month out of the year? So if I had my way, we would sing songs like O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and Joy to the World all throughout the year. And I try and pitch that to our worship leader, but she uh, doesn't listen to me. And, uh, <laughs> but Christmas is all about music. It's filled with songs. It's a season filled with songs. And what we're going to do is we've been going through the book of Ephesians. We're going to pause there because what we've actually been thinking about the last couple of weeks is worship. And why do we sing what we sing? Why do we order the service the way we do? And we're going to look and uh, for the next four weeks, we're going to talk about the original Christmas carols or the original songs of the season. And they're songs of the Savior the original songs of salvation, because what Luke does in his gospel is he's setting up the birth of Christ. He does so with songs. And he'll give you four songs that set the stage for who Jesus is and what he's coming to do. He'll give you the song of Zechariah, the song of Mary, the song of the angels that becomes the song of the shepherd and then the song of Simeon. And we're going to walk through each of those songs. And each one of them actually have been given a, a Latin name throughout church history. And they've worked themselves into the corporate life of church worship for almost 2,000 years. So we're going to look at the, the original Christmas carols. And as we go through these, um, it's interesting to note what's not in these songs. So uh, they're not songs about magical snowmen. They're not songs about reindeer with red noses. They're not songs about um, hot chocolate or Christmas shoes. There's no turtle doves. There's no golden rings. There's no hot chocolate. There's no snow. There's no snow in any of these songs. So how can you have Christmas songs without snow? Well, these songs are actually about salvation, about who Jesus is and what he's come to do. They're about hope dawning despite all appearances. They're about the lowly being lifted up and the proud being brought low. They're about lifelong longings being satisfied. But all of the songs have a certain angst to them, a certain crying out of the Lord to come, come and do something, come and help us, come and redeem us, restore us, renew us, uh, satisfy us, help us. And so this first song we're going to look at is a song of Zechariah, which has come down through history. It's called the Benedictus, which is Latin for blessing or praise. And so Zechariah's story the story of his song is that this story begins in barrenness and it ends in blessing. It begins in brokenness, barrenness, and ends in 
praise. It's a story that uh, starts out, in essence, in silence and then ends in song. It's a, uh, the word that comes is a word of promise and then a song of praise. So this is a story about a godly, faithful, holy couple who is suffering in silence as they wait. And then the Lord comes through. And it ends with the boisterous explosion of joyful worship from a godly but a flawed man. So that's the story we're going to walk through this morning. Got a lot of text to cover. So what I want to do is just, in essence, just kind of walk us through step by step Zachariah's journey so we can enter into his song and experience what he sang and why he sang. So let's look at uh, Luke chapter 1, and the way we're going to kind of walk through this is verse 5 through 25 sets up the word of promise, gives us the backstory, and it's the word of promise, and then we'll move through the different scenes, and then starting in verse 57, we'll shift over to the song of praise. So let's just take it piece by piece. First, let's set up the word of promise and look at verse 5 through 7. Here... Luke is going to give you the setting. So here are the characters. Here's the setting. Let's set the stage so you can encounter the drama that's about to unfold. So in the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah, and his wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. So he sets up the scene that first, the setting, this is the time of Herod. So you need to get that in your mind if you read the gospel stories in Matthew, where you can see Herod, uh, he called himself the great, but in some ways was a terror. And so these are, you know, this word is coming into a time of darkness, a time of difficulty. This is a time of Roman oppression. It's a time of political oppression. It's a time of anxiety and fear. And it's a time where um, all of the elderly are weary and tired of waiting. And all of the young are eager and energetic and angry. They want to know, why isn't anyone doing anything to stop this? And they look at their elders and think, all right, you haven't done, a, you have failed. We're going to fix this. So it's a time of tremendous political instability and revolt. And the word comes in into that. But it's interesting that then what Luke's going to do is draw you into, in the midst of this political unrest and instability, he draws you into the domestic difficulty of an elderly couple. So the home, a problem at home. And he wants you to know first, he really wants you to know the family they came from. They were both godly people from the priestly line. And he wants you to know that they were an honorable family. They lived a godly life. They were righteous in God's sight. They observed all of his commands. They lived blamelessly. They were active in ministry. They were distinguished by their goodness or their godliness. These were, have you ever heard the phrase like salt of the earth type people? Every community has those certain people that just everyone in the community recognizes that these are just good people. Like our community, our neighborhood, our schools, they're better because they're there. 
They serve, they help, they love. That's who uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth were in their community. They were salt of the earth type people. Everyone would have known them. Everyone would have loved them. When their name came up, everyone would have said, oh, Elizabeth is just wonderful. Do you remember that time? They tell stories of her, her helping others. And everybody probably said, ah, oh, well, you know, she's uh, wondering how, how long has she put up with Zechariah? And, you know, the jokes haven't changed across cultures. <laughs> but they were the salt of the earth type people. But it says, but, verse 7, they had no child. There was only one dark cloud that hung over kind of their domestic life, their life of happiness. And for them, it, Luke tells you, it's been there a long, long time. They were very old. They were past the age of childbearing. But I think it's worth pausing even before we launch into the story. Why does God go out of his way to let you know that they were righteous in his sight and yet they were childless? It seems as if he really wants us to know that he doesn't want us to confuse the two. And to think that one is the cause and the other the effect. That the reason why they had silently gone through this season of suffering in their own life was because they were being punished for something. It's kind of like the beginning of Job. God really wants you to know that Job is righteous and the suffering he goes to is not his fault. It's not punishment for sin. Now, when we enter into times of suffering and struggle and sorrow, there's all types of reasons that can come for that. Sometimes it is because of our own sin. Sometimes it's because of the sins of others. Sometimes it's, we enter into seasons of suffering and sorrow not because we're doing the wrong thing, but because we're doing the right thing. I mean, Jesus tells you, blessed are you when you're persecuted for my name's sake, for my kingdom. But for her, it wasn't because she was um, sinful. God wants you to know that their suffering was not a result of their sin. They had endured this long, silent season, but it wasn't punishment. So just kind of enter into experience. I mean, barrenness for a couple is difficult in any culture, any age or stage. But in her world, it would have been especially challenging because in her world, so much of a woman and a, a family's self-worth and identity was wrapped up into your children. It wasn't just a, a domestic reality. It was also an economic and a national defense issue. Because, you, know, you, know, you know, the way you raised your GDP for your community is you just had to have more workers. So if you had a lot of sons, you had more workers. That means you had more wealth. So if you could have a lot of sons, you'd be a hero in your community. Same with military might. It wasn't about technological advancement, really. It was just a sheer numbers game. You had more men. You had more soldiers. That means you had more protection. And so barrenness, you see this, a theme runs all throughout Scripture. But it's something that is, um, attacks the, the couple at the, kind of their heart. And so any couple I think has ever experienced this knows, I mean, think about some of the things you would have to endure, just the prying, inappropriate questions, the insensitive remarks, the sharp pain of desire, every new birth. I wonder how many times she had been called to the help of a young mother who was complaining about a reality that deep in her heart she would love to experience and say, I would give anything to experience what you're complaining about. And she would suffer, had to hold that silently, couldn't, couldn't say that, couldn't let that out. You know, one of the beautiful things about my job is that God frequently will kind of 
hit me in the face with realities. And just a couple weeks ago, uh, we had a particularly <laughs> difficult morning with our two-year-old, as you're prone to do when you have two-year-olds. And I was very frustrated, had lost my patience, had not responded properly. And then when I sat down to work, I opened up my email and I got an email from a friend asking to pray for his friends. I didn't know the family, but his friend's two-year-old because they had just found out that that two-year-old had cancer and was being rushed to the hospital for emergency surgery. And just thought, here I am so ungrateful, so, you know, uh, complaining about something where they would give anything to have my problems. And so that's how Elizabeth lived in that world. But what they wanted to know is that this long season of silent suffering wasn't uh, in essence, to punish her, but it was for God's glory. God was going to do something and bring something beautiful out of it. And I think one of the lessons we can learn is when we go through, because every single person here at some point will go through a sustained period of silent suffering where you're, you're carrying a burden. There's something weighing on you that you, you just, it just weighs you down. And it could be for a significant season. And one of the things that Elizabeth's life teaches us is that in those seasons, the real, probably the best questions aren't, why is this happening? Or why me? Or what did I do to deserve this? The best questions are, how can God be glorified through this? Not so much why, but how. And we're going to see in her life how. Now let's move in the next scene as we move through here as Zechariah moves into the temple. Verse 8, once when Zechariah's division was on duty, he was serving as a priest before God. He was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. So the next scene set something up that's totally unexpected and absolutely amazing. He gets, so the way he, in his priestly line, all of the, the divisions, there would be 24 priestly divisions. They would be on duty at temple worship services for two weeks out of the year. Uh, in those two weeks, there'd be 28 daily services where they would then draw lots. So one priest would serve in the morning, one priest serve in the evening, had several thousand in each division. So you would draw lots and you only had one shot at this your whole life. So, and part of the worship service is you would go into the temple. There'd be three kind of stations. You had three responsibilities. You would go in and you would trim the lamps. There was kind of three pieces of furniture. You had the lamp stand that represented the light of God's presence shining on his people. You had the table with the showbread that represents the, and then you had an altar of incense that represented the prayers of the people. So you would put the altar, uh, the incense on the altar, and it would ascend up into his presence. And so he was chosen. This is the only time in his life that he's going to get to do this. This is the greatest day of his professional life. And so just kind of imagine and enter into his experience. He would have to don the priestly robe, and he would have to uh, walk in. He's, he's elderly. What was it like that morning? Was Elizabeth helping him get everything just right and smoothing him out and getting him ready? How nervous was he when he walked in? I mean, we lit the Advent candle, and I was very impressed by how steady Noah's hand was. But you kind of like even lighting this little candle, you start being shaky, and you think, oh, no, I'm anxious thinking something's going to drop on the... 
uh, garland and send the whole table up in flames. Maybe he's anxious. Who, what, what if I drop the candle? What if I knock the bread off? And then he's going in. What would that, that morning, that experience been like? No matter what he's experiencing, his heart is racing. This is the greatest moment of his professional life because he's entering into the living presence of the Lord. But he has a job to do. And part of his job as a priest is to bear the prayers of the people into God's presence. So when he goes to lay the incense, this isn't just so the temple could smell nice. It's symbolic of the prayers of God's people. It's symbolic that we're laying our prayers and now they're going up into his presence. He had a job to do to represent them in the presence of the Father. So then notice how the next scene in verse 11, notice the encounter. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled. And he was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. And he has never to take wine or other fermented drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Even before he's born, he will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So here comes this encounter with an angel and the promised word. And his heart was racing as he did these activities. And then all of a sudden his heart almost stops as he sees this angel and is terrified about him. I don't know what your mental conception is of angels, if it's like, you know, precious moments with fat cheeks and chubby bellies on clouds, but uh, every person who encounters an angel in the Bible is terrified of them. And nearly every single time, their first word is fear not. Do not be afraid. So he comes and then he announces, actually in verse 19, says, the angel said to him, I'm Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God, and I've been sent to you to speak and to tell you this good news. He, that's the same word, gospel. He announces his gospel, this good news that the Lord has heard his prayers. And think about that line, the Lord has heard your prayer. And we don't know, but it's interesting to think, what prayer is he talking about? I mean, at this point, did they still pray? Surely when they were young, they prayed every day for a child. But at some point, did they give up? And did they stop? Did Elizabeth encourage him that he was going to go? And this was the moment they'd been waiting for, for their family their whole life. So surely, even though he was representing the people of Israel, when he went into the presence of the Lord, could he sneak in a prayer at the altar of incense for her as well? What prayer is he talking about? He says, your wife Elizabeth will conceive. Now, what's really interesting about this next phrase, starting from uh, verse 15 all the way down, is this is actually filled with scriptural references from the book of Malachi. So there's about six or seven just kind of smushed together. And uh, about the one who's going to come, what he's going to do. The book of Malachi was the last book of the Old Testament. There have been 400 years between Malachi received that prophecy and then Zechariah encounters the angel. 400 silent years. And then Gabriel tells him all the, the hopes, the things that were pointed to in Malachi are about to happen I think it's interesting when he says, the Lord has heard your prayers. You know, in one sense, our responsibility is to lift up the prayers. God, in his timing, answers them. 
And uh, in some sense, when he answers them is, is his business. It's our job to keep praying. The Lord has heard your prayers. And then notice how he responds. So think about it. How would you respond? You, you know, the thing you've been praying for probably your entire adult life, you've just been told it's going to happen. It's going to be fulfilled. You're going to experience that deep longing of your heart that you've experienced, you've desired for years. And then not only that, it's going to be in the context that you've taught people as a priest to look for the coming of the Messiah. He's going to come and there'll be a forerunner and all of these things. You have to, notice what it says, you have to make ready the people for the Lord. You have to prepare. The Lord is coming and part of your job is to prepare for him. This incredible guest is coming, so make ready, prepare. What do you do to prepare? You rejoice, you repent, you get going, then how does he respond? Look in verse 18. Then Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I've been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you do not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. So he responds with, with doubt, with unbelief. He says, how can I know that this is going to happen? You know, really the thing that he doesn't, the, the, the big question is, can the priest really believe in God's supernatural power? Can the priest really believe in God's gracious promise? He wants to know, how can I know? And from his perspective, he's, he's looking at things from a human perspective, he says, look, how is this going to happen? I'm too old. You know, his biology is right, but his theology is wrong. How can this happen? John Chrysostom says he looked at his age, his gray hair, his body that had lost all its vitality. He looked at his wife's sterility, and he refused to accept on faith the promise revealed by the angel. And this really is the area of struggle for everyone. Can we believe that God is faithful to his word? He's given tremendous promises about who he is, what he's going to do, how he's going to renew and restore all things. Can we really believe him and take him at his word? And I find such hope and comfort from the fact that one of the first people in this story, they didn't believe. Zechariah didn't believe. And he was a priest. That's his job. That's his job to teach people and encourage them to believe these things. And then he didn't. There's deep irony in his story because he's been praying his whole life, asking God to do something. And then when God does it, he doesn't believe it can actually happen. He doesn't believe God's going to do the thing he's been praying for his whole life. Why? Because we're fickle like that. Unbelief runs deep. Maybe he thought, well, sure, God does this kind of thing for other people, but not for us. I mean, he might do that for Sarah, or he might do that for Rebecca, or Rachel, or people we've read about in the Old Testament, but he doesn't do that kind of thing for us. And I find it so interesting to think about all of the, so part of his kind of day job was to teach people the scriptures when he was at home. And so who knows, he at some point in his life did a sermon series on Malachi, chapter 3, 4, and 5. And then probably the application points of that sermon series is that the Lord is going to do this. Let's wait and hope and trust him when he does. And that he gets told this is actually happening through your family. And he doesn't believe it. But I find that so encouraging. See, God's going to make a believer out of him yet. 
It's just going to take some time. But God's going to make a believer out of him yet. I find it interesting also because you look at verse 18 to 23. So let's keep going and get the rest of the story. Then uh, let's pick up in 21. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed low. So they start to wonder. They start to get anxious. You know, he's, he's elderly at this point. Maybe he knocked the candles over. Maybe he had a heart attack. Who knows what happened? Maybe somebody's going to have to go in and get him. Then he comes out and he still has a job to do. He has to come out and he has to give the benediction over all the, the worshipers. He has to come out, but he can't speak. And then they realize he'd seen a vision because he kept making signs to them. And then 23, when his time of the service was completed, he returned home. Now, what's fascinating is Luke didn't need to tell you for the story, verses 18 through 23. He could have cut that out and then just gone on. But he includes that. And in the ancient world, like every, in ancient writings, any of them, everything that people, everything the author tells you is important because writing was time-consuming and expensive. You couldn't just kind of rattle things off, uh, you know, 90 words a minute. So everything is, is significant. And he wants us to walk with Zechariah through his, his journey from unbelief to belief. But think a minute about his punishment. His punishment is that he can't speak. You know, that he just has received the greatest news he'll ever hear in his life, and he can't tell anyone about it. He can't speak. And then, actually move forward, so we'll move to the song of praise. But part of the point here is that when the Lord comes with the word of promise, uh, the question is, how do you respond? Do you respond in belief or Unbelief. The fundamental question is, do you believe? And then move to verse 57. So he goes back. Actually, let's see Elizabeth, her response in 23. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. And after this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant for five months. She remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In those days, he has shown his favor. And he has taken away my disgrace from among the people. So she knows who, who it is that she has to thank for this goodness that has come to her. And then pick up in verse 57. So then Mary comes, an encounter between Mary and Elizabeth that we'll look at next week. And then let's pick up the, the end of the story for John the Baptist. In 57, when it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. I mean, there, there, there's so much here in the story you would like to know. Like, you know, what was it like? How was it for her? You know, this is, this is the first time she'd ever experienced something like this. Was the pregnant, pregnancy difficult? Was it uh, challenging? And then notice everyone, now they're from a little small uh, country town outside the big city of Jerusalem. And so when you're in like little bitty towns, every birth is a big deal. But for someone like Elizabeth, this would have been the talk of the town. And then it was her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they share her joy. They celebrate. But what I love is how much human reality is worked into these stories. These aren't like fables and fairy tales, because you can see the reality of lived experience. If you've ever lived in a small town where people are very energetic and into people's lives, you can see how this is playing out. A little town we lived in in Alabama, the joke was we had Facebook before there was Facebook. And the idea was, you know, people complain because there's no secrets with social media. I say, hey, in this town, there's never been secrets ever. If you do something within 30 minutes, the entire town knows about it anyway. So the rest of the world is just catching up. 
But here, notice what happens, and I find it so fascinating because all of her friends, all of her relatives, everyone in the neighborhood, they start like, they're being busybodies. On the eighth day, they come to bring the child to circumcise him. That's the, the, um, the, the ceremony to draw him into the covenant community of God's people. And then just the assumption, he's going to be Zachariah Jr. That's the way it works. They've already knitted all the monogram wicker baskets and put a big Z on it because that's, that's just how it is. And they don't even give them the opportunity to name their own child because they're just assuming. And then the mother has to speak up and say, no, what are you doing? Stop. They're going through the priestly ceremony of the pastor is dedicating the child, calling him the wrong name. And the mom's like, no, why are you doing this? We, his name is John. And they still, they don't believe it. They argue. You don't have anybody in your relatives with that name. No wonder. Yeah, we, we know this has been an emotionally difficult time and you're really excited, but you need to think clearly. Let us help you. You're not doing it right. And then they start signaling to Zechariah. And what I've, what's interesting is it said he couldn't speak, but chances are he couldn't hear either because they have to make signs to him. And so they just assume Elizabeth's gone off the rails. It's some type of like postpartum insanity. We have to save her. And then they start saying, do you realize, do you see what your wife's doing? She's disgracing you and all of our people by not giving this son your name. And then notice what Zechariah does. It says, to everyone's astonishment, he takes out a writing tablet and he says, his name is John. And immediately his mouth was opened. Now, isn't it interesting when Gabriel t punished him and told him that his, he was going to be silent, he said, you will be silent until this comes to pass, until it takes place. So I wonder if Zechariah thought he would be silent until the baby was born. But he actually wasn't. He was silent until he publicly declared his name is John. Why? Why does the Lord wait to end the punishment to when he says his name is John? John, because it's almost like his tongue can't be loosed until he expresses his belief. Because part of the promise is that he's going to come, you're going to name him John because he's going to be the forerunner. And so this is a test. Does Zechariah actually believe? See, he's, his punishment came because he didn't believe the word, but his declaration of the name of the child is a public testimony that he does believe the word. He's been transformed by this season of silence. And then once he believes, this is where we get the Benedictus starting in the line in verse 64. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was set free. And he began to speak, praising God. And all the neighbors were filled with awe. And throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. And everyone who heard this wonderful news kept asking about it. What is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand is on him. See, what I find so amazing, as soon as he... Uh, is able to speak, he praises. And in this moment of blessing, the benedictus, the praise be, he knows who he has to thank. He thanks the Lord. And you know, one of the challenges is people often will kind of push on us and say, you know, why, how can you believe, you know, how can you believe in a God who allow difficult things? So how can a good God allow um, bad things to happen to people? And that's a difficult challenge, but one other challenge that also has to be met is who do you think when you experience good things? Have you ever thought about what, like in the moments of overwhelming mercy, when you're experiencing the goodness 
of just of something that's bigger than anything you could have earned or achieved or even articulate, who do you thank in those moments? I mean, Zechariah knows in this moment of tremendous blessing, he's dissolved by God's mercy, and he weeps for the grace that he has found. What, what do you do when you experience overwhelming blessing? He knows who to thank. And quickly, just as you look at the song, he sings this song, and it's got, you could break it down a number of different ways, but one way to kind of get a sense of what this song is about is verse 68 through 75, he begins to sing a song of salvation. This is the salvation that the Lord is going to come. See, he recognizes all of the staggering implications of what Gabriel has told him. He's going to be the Elijah character. He's going to be the forerunner. He's coming to lay the groundwork and to prepare the people to encounter the Lord their God. And he knows what that means and recognizes that the birth of this baby is so much bigger than just their domestic happiness. He's actually going to be the first movement in the act that's going to bring salvation to the entire world. He recognizes something so much bigger is going on here. And what's fascinating is I wonder in their world, you know, none of the powerful people in first century Rome would have cared at all about this baby's birth. You know, there's no announcement in the Senate that Zechariah and Elizabeth were having a child. There was no first century TV crews, no newspapers, no reporters. This didn't pop up on the ticker that this family had had. Nobody in the world would have cared, and this is the most important thing that's happening in their world. And maybe it's just a lesson to us about what God prioritizes and what really matters. But quickly, look at the different things you learn about salvation. Verse 68, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people to redeem them. The first thing that we'll see in all these songs is salvation is about incarnation. It's about God coming down. God enters in. God is visiting them. God is coming to them. He comes to his people. Salvation is not us going up to him. It's God coming down to us. And all of the, the beauty and, the, and the, the terror that's involved with that. God coming down. It's incarnation. It's also fulfillment of promises. Notice how often he says, look at 69, he's raised up a horn of salvation in the house of his servant David. And then verse 70, as he said through his holy prophets long ago, he's told us this. And then 74, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies, or sorry, 73, the oath he swore to our father Abraham. Salvation is about incarnation, it's about fulfillment God fulfilling what he's promised to do to put a son of David on his throne through Abraham and his family. He's going to bless the entire world through this child. All of the promises are coming true. But notice the note of deliverance. He's going to, uh, in verse 68, he's going to redeem his people. Verse 71, salvation from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us. Verse 74, to rescue us from the hand. He's coming to deliver, to redeem, to rescue. There must be, um, there is a great enemy that has them bound. There is bondage that has to be broken. There is needs that have to be met. There's a redemption price that has to be paid. And he's going to come and do that. And Israel had always had these great enemies. Had the Egyptians and the Canaanites and the Assyrians and Babylonians and Romans at this time. But what he's going to point them to is that there is an enemy that's far more sinister than any of these earthly enemies that he's coming to break the chains 
of. And then notice how the first part, how he includes in 74 and 75, he's coming to rescue us. Why? To enable us to serve him without fear. So we can worship him. We can enter into his presence in holiness and righteousness before him. All of his day, our days, we can come into his presence. Salvation is always first from something than for something. It's always from and for. And you see like the story of the Exodus that we looked at two weeks ago. Salvation, deliverance from and for. Delivered from the enemies for worship, for presence. So we can come into his presence and worship and serve him without fear. And then the second stanza, he shifts from the salvation that the Lord brings to the son that he receives. So then you, my child. I mean, how long had he waited in his life to say, my child, you, my child, you will be called a prophet of the most high. And from you will go, you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him to give to his people the knowledge of salvation. He's going to preach. He's going to declare there's knowledge that they need, and he's going to give it to them, but it's going to come through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. Here's someone who could sing about God's tender mercy because he had experienced it. Even though in some ways it was severe, it was still tender by which the rising of the sun or the day spring, the, the dawn from heaven is coming and it's shining on all those who live in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. So he's going to come and what he's going to do is going to help them understand what type of salvation they need. See, the perennial human problem is that we all know we need salvation. We just look for it in the wrong place. They were looking for it in the political and economic world. We look for it in political, economic, personal freedom kind of world. But what he's coming to show them is this isn't the primary freedom they need. Kind of like the story Mark begins his gospel with where you have the story of Jesus is preaching in the house and then the friends have the paralyzed man and they cut the hole in the roof and they, they drop him down in front of Jesus. And uh, it's this tremendous dramatic story. And Jesus says, I see your, your faith. Uh, my son, your sins are forgiven. You can imagine what the guy laying on the mat was thinking at that moment. Well, thanks. That's great. I appreciate that. That's not actually, um, I was hoping you could help my legs. I was hoping you could do something else. But one of the things Jesus is going to do is tell him that actually your deepest problem isn't the fact that your legs don't function. I'll deal with that. But the deepest problem is that you need your sins forgiven. And that's what he had to t teach him. And that's what John the Baptist had to teach all of us. Because we all have something we feel like we need to be saved from. Bad work situations, toxic relationships, financial setbacks. One of the interesting things, if you want to just know, what is the salvation our culture feels like it needs? You can go look at like Barnes & Noble and just look at the magazine rack and just read the headlines on the magazines. Because every one of them is evangelizing you to buy their product with a gospel that says you can be set free from something. You can be set free from, you know, bad, bad work, codependent relationships, excess body fat, whatever it is you need to be redeemed from. And in their world, they thought they needed primarily to be redeemed from po political oppression. But one of the things John's going to tell them, that's not enough. That's not deep enough. The gospel is coming and there will be social transformation, but there first must be personal spiritual regeneration. 
See, what they needed more than anything else was to have their relationship with God put right. So the day spring from on high, their salvation is dawning. Like the new light on a new day, it's coming gradually, it's coming globally, and it's coming in all of its glory. And this is the first song that we see, the song of salvation. And these songs, it's, in one sense, this song is better. The song of salvation is better than a song about a snowman or snowmen or hot chocolate. It's about our salvation. And if you want to really get the sense of the story, is you can hear it through the names. Each one of the names matter. Zechariah, his name means God remembers. God remembers. And then the name Elizabeth means God is faithful. God hears, he remembers, he's faithful to respond. John's name means God is gracious. He is gracious, he is merciful. And of course, Jesus' name means God saves. And the way God saves is God remembers, he's gracious, he's faithful, and he saves. So let's praise him and thank him and ask him to put those notes of these songs into our hearts this season. And we'll spend some time praying for people who, uh, for everyone in here, who in different ways and different realities, like Elizabeth, like Zechariah, carries secret burdens.